0: This is the Read to Lead podcast episode 443.
1: Are you mentoring people? Are you serving people? Are you are you writing books? Are you producing podcasts? Are you doing things that are going to help way more people than you could ever help on a one-to-one personal level? Are you drifting through
0: life? Do you want to leave a powerful legacy but aren't sure where to start? Would you like to make a difference not only today, but also a hundred years from now? If so, you need a compass, a collection of essential values to carry with you on life's journey, values that'll help you become a person of character and guide you through the fog and confusion of the modern world. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. And to make the most of that reading and the other content you're consuming, you have to understand what goes into executing on that knowledge. That's why I created Note Making Mastery, my live cohort that this week begins its third iteration. There's also a self-paced version, if that's more your style. If you struggle with effectively capturing your notes, finding they're often of little or no use for you later, maybe your notes are siloed inside various note capture apps and hard to call upon when needed. Maybe you struggle with borrowed creativity, gathering other people's thoughts that never seem to evolve into ideas all your own. Or you've got numerous notebooks filled with handwritten notes that are difficult to organize with ideas among them that are impossible to connect. Or you've found that creating with those notes and implementing what you've learned is incredibly difficult. If that's the case, then I'm thrilled to let you know that in Note Making Mastery, you learn how to better collect and capture your notes, what to write, how much what tools to use and when, how to better connect and organize your notes so that you can easily and effectively and sometimes serendipitously find them later when it matters, how to better crystallize or develop and distill your notes so that your unique responses to the inputs, your own ideas and insights generated from the content you consume doesn't fall through the cracks, and how to better create with and from your notes. After all, What's the point of consuming all this content in the first place if you never share what you've learned with the world, whether that's online at work or even in conversation? Past students of note making Mastery have reported increased efficiency with their time, being able to capture and organize ideas and notes the first time through a book or other material, improved listening skills, leaps in their professional growth and development, more consistency in publishing content, enhanced reading comprehension and retention, becoming better conversationalists and presenters, starting or completing that first book. If any of those things resonate with you, I encourage you to check out Note-Making Mastery. You can see two different options, a self-paced option and the live session version, and find out all about my new Read to Lead Network at jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. I hope to see you for this month's Note-Making Mastery because it's not too late. Again, (laughs) jeffbrown.me. Kent Sanders is the founder of Inkwell Ghostwriting, which helps leaders grow their businesses through books and other content. He's also the author of The Artist's Suitcase, 26 Essentials for the Creative Journey, and co-author of Performance Driven Giving, the roadmap to unleashing the power of generosity in your life. Kent loves to help other writers, too, as the founder of The Daily Writer Club and as host of The Daily Writer Podcast. You'll find him at kentsanders.net and dailywriterlife.com. I'm calling this book we're talking about today, his new book, which came out in April. He is part of a book that's coming out today also, which we'll talk about uh, just a little bit later. But the book uh, that is the focus of our conversation is called 18 Words to Live By, A Father's Wisdom on What Matters Most. Uh, Kent, this is probably long overdue, but I want to welcome you officially to the Read to Lead
1: podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate the invite I have been a longtime listener of your show in fact, it's one of the podcasts that I have listened to the longest over the oh. years when you were a kid did you watch Johnny Carson? yes so I feel a little bit like one of those guests who has been <laughs> watching the Tonight show for years and then all of a sudden you hear Ed McMahon's voice and I'm I'm like oh my gosh I get to be a guest <laughs> I feel so honored and so respected you know and, and so so cherished so thanks for the invite I appreciate it
0: Wow! Wow! That's a that's a compliment and a half right there. I really appreciate that. I, I admired Carson and his work a great deal, so thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, first, I would love for you to address your relationship as a parent with time. <laughs> how does how does time manage to alter itself when when the little ones come along?
1: Boy, that's a great question. My wife and I have talked about that a lot. Our experience now. One thing to keep in mind is we have one child. His name's Ben. He's eighteen obviously that goes along with the book because uh, mm. I wrote the book for his 18th birthday. For us, our experience was that when he got in junior high, things started to go a lot faster. And I'm not sure why that was, mm. maybe except that when you get in junior high, there's a lot more activities. The kids have typically a lot more homework. There's just more hubbub mm. in your life in general, because there's just, there's just a lot more stuff involved in their school activities. So for us, things seem to go by faster and faster when he got in junior high. And then all of a sudden we turned around and, oh, he's graduating. <laughs> I don't know if that's all parents experience, but it certainly was for us. It's it's a really bizarre phenomenon. I'm not sure why that's the case, but I think most parents do experience that.
0: Well, I want to know where the idea to write a book for your son to your son for his 18th birthday came from. How, how did that all come about? And did you maybe second guess the idea at any point?
1: You know, I never second guessed it. This is the way that that honestly it happened. So in the summer of 2021, so this would have been last summer, mm. one day I just realized, oh, my goodness, my son's going to be 18 next year. Now, that wasn't news to me, and I had known ever <laughs> since he was born that someday he would be 18. But you know, I think every parent, you have that realization where you look around and think, oh, my gosh this certain milestone is going to be happening in my kid's life. Same thing in other areas of life. You look around and maybe you think one day, oh my gosh, I'm going to be 30 or 40 or 50, or this other important thing is coming up. And it kind of stinks up on you. So I was just sitting around one day and thinking, man, what is something really special I could give him for his 18th birthday? And I didn't just want to do the normal thing of here's some tech thing or or whatever it is. I wanted to do something that I felt like would be really meaningful. Now I am also into family history and into genealogy and and all that stuff. Mm. So I thought, what is something I could give him that is something he could pass on to his kids or grandkids or great grandkids when I'm gone someday, not to be morbid, but I'm kind of a realist. And I think if you live life with the perspective that you are going to pass away someday, you need to think about what you're going to leave to the people who come behind you. So being a writer And that being my main marketable skill, I don't have a lot of other skills, to be honest with you, (laughs) but I can write. I thought, well, why don't I write a book? And so that's what I proceeded to do. And Mm -hmm. I just started to think of, of what are some values that I would want to include in this book? And one day the the title 18 words to live by just kind of popped into my head out of nowhere. So I just started thinking through what are the, the, what would the chapters be and how would I put this together? And I wanted it to be a short book of wisdom, meaning the chapters would be really short, would be easy to read it would be something that that a person could read in an hour or two so that's really how the book came together it just probably out of a sense of desperation a little bit that i wanted to do something <laughs> that i felt like would be would be perceived as special to my kids so that's that's really where it came from
0: And something that future generations in your family are going to uh, stumble across, (laughs) whether, even if they're not uh, made, obviously aware of it, you know, you make, you give that example, I think at one point of somebody, you know, opening up a box and finding a copy of it with the name Sanders on it and going, Oh, what's this about?
1: Right. Well, one of my most treasured possessions is a, I don't know if you remember this brand of notebooks. I never used them as a kid, but, but I I think they were still around uh, at some point, maybe back in the, maybe they still are. I don't know. It's the Scotty brand notebook. Mm. And it was like a, a black and white. It looked like a, a paint speckled cover on it. At least that's what one of them looked like. I've got one of those. And my grandmother had written poetry in one of those in the 1970s. Mm. She died when I was three years old. But that's the only thing of hers personally that I have. And it's, it's the actual mm. notebook that she wrote poetry in. And that's really, really special to me. And I thought, what could I make for my son? That would be something similar, a physical object that contained my words and my thinking And so that's partly where that idea came from is just looking at this notebook of poetry my grandmother had written. And that somehow ended up with me over the years. And that was so special to me. I wanted to somehow pass that same experience onto my own kid.
0: Obviously, uh, parents listening right now can immediately recognize the value of a book like this, especially if they have high school or maybe college aged children who sort of venturing out into in, into life on their own for the first time. Uh, but what about everybody else listening? Uh, maybe they don't have children or their children are, are grown and gone or their children are really small. There's still something in this for them, right?
1: Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think, you know, not to, I guess, expand the metaphor in, in a lot of ways, or in any kind of ways that are that are not realistic, but I think we have, we have children in different ways in life. Mm. There are biological children. There are spiritual children, if you're a person of faith. There are other kinds of people in your life that you pass on wisdom and learning to people that you help in life. And I think a, a child, and if, if you kind of expand the idea of, of what a child is to some degree, a child can be anyone that you pass on your wisdom to, it's someone who learns mm. from you, someone that reads your book or listens to a podcast. I mean, my goodness, Jeff, you have... Uh, at this point, how, how many, quote unquote, intellectual or leadership or reading children do you have at this point <laughs> who have listened to your podcast? And at some point, the metaphor kind of breaks down, of course. But <laughs> but I think the point remains because your biological kids are not the only people that you impact in life. Mm. And if you don't have kids or even if you've maybe you've had a child and you've lost that child, you can still have a radical impact on people in life. And I don't I don't think the biology of how you're connected to someone really has anything to do with it. I think it is the way that you live with intention in your life. And are you mentoring people? Are you serving people? Are you, are you writing books? Are you producing podcasts? Are you doing things that are going to help way more people than you could ever help on a one-to-one personal level? To me, that's, that's the, that's really the thing that we're kind of setting out to do. In my case, this was just one simple project I wanted to do for my biological son, but through my other writing, I certainly want to impact far more people than just that.
0: Well, the choice of, of 18 words to live by is an obvious one. Your your son was, was about to turn 18 after all, but I have to believe that deciding upon those 18 words, filtering them down maybe to 18, was probably a tough process. Can you talk a bit about how you decided on, on the 18 words to live by that, that you chose? And then we'll go more deeply into some of those.
1: Sure. It was, and it's actually, at least to me, it's kind of a funny story. It's probably not really an interesting story to anybody else, <laughs> <clears throat> but- what actually happened is last fall, I had decided I was going to do this book. I didn't actually tell anybody that I was going to do this book, except the editor that I was going to hire to do it and the cover designer. Those are the only two people that actually knew about this project. Mm. And I sat down one day and I thought, okay, I've kind of committed to doing this. Now I actually have to produce the book, which is the place that a lot of writers find themselves in where you have this concept that you think is interesting and, oh, and now I have to actually create the thing. Mm. So I sat down and I made a list of probably 40 or 50 potential what i would just call values or potential chapters i just kind of whittled them down to the ones that i felt like were going to be the most interesting to me and the most important to to my son and also the ones that i thought would make the most interesting chapters you know and i would would look through and think do i have a story that goes with this do i really have something to say about this particular one maybe do i do i have something that's kind of counterintuitive to say about this topic because i think as a writer you don't just want to add to the noise you want to say something that maybe goes against conventional wisdom, or you want to add something new, or you want to add your personal story to the mix. You want to give the reader a reason to actually go through the book. So those were all factors for me in deciding which, which chapters I would actually use in the book. Mm. And I approached this exactly like I would any other kind of nonfiction book, which is, okay, let's kind of start with a bunch of ideas and let's whittle them down and see what we got. And, and they did change a little bit, actually, as I went through the book, I consolidated a few of those and. Mm. Uh, there were a couple of of chapters that I started writing, and I thought, well, this isn't is very interesting. So I ditched those and, and came up with the other ones. So kind of a very normal process of doing a nonfiction book.
0: Uh, I'll throw out here some of these uh, that are included, and then we'll dig into a few. Sure. Um, responsibility, courage, empathy, generosity, creativity. Those first five in particular are ones I want to hit on. But also uh, discretion, faith, encouragement, growth, and gratitude, resilience integrity, forgiveness, or some of the others that, that Kent includes, what advice did you pass along about the need to take charge of your life? Talking, of course, about responsibility.
1: That was the number one item that I included in the book because I felt like that was by far the most important because what I see in culture today and here I feel like I'm, I'm sort of going into you know the old man yelling at the kids to get off your lawn sort of <laughs> mode. That's not really what I'm in, intending, mm. but there is a bit of that I think as all of us get older, we see things that are happening in the world and maybe um, even within ourselves that we think, man, I've got something to say about this and I would really like people to engage with me as I talk about this. I think that is a critical quality because I see a lot of people who see themselves as victims or they just are kind of wandering aimlessly through life, just sort of adrift And at some point you have to accept responsibility Mm. for your life. You may find yourself in bad circumstances or in a situation that you don't like, or like me, I found myself after, after years of teaching college in a situation where I didn't want to be anymore. It wasn't because the people around me were bad at all. In fact, they were really awesome people. That's one of the things that made it hard to, to want to leave is because I loved them so much and I really did enjoy my job. But it wasn't ultimately going to take me to where I wanted to go, which was having my own business and having more opportunity and those kinds of things. And I've had a lot of conversations with my son over the years because he's had different jobs. And right now he works at a sub shop and is doing really well. But there have been times where he's he's had a situation or two with a customer like anybody working in retail or food service does. Or maybe something he wanted to talk to his boss about Mm. that he maybe wanted to change or he wanted to ask for a raise. And I've always tried to help him see you have to take charge. And you have to take responsibility for creating the situation that you want to see created. And you have to ask the question. You have to ask for the race. You have to accept responsibility for the things that you want to have happen in your life. I just think that's an absolutely critical quality because if you don't accept responsibility, you're just, you're just going to receive whatever life happens to throw at you. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty bad way to go through life. It's just (laughs) sort of being adrift and, Mm. and going with the wind and the wave and, then you, after a few decades, you just wind up wherever you're going to land. And I sure don't want to leave my, my legacy and my life to fate. I want to take charge and and take responsibility for that. So that's sort of where, where that came from.
0: There's uh, in the, I think it's the courage chapter. Yeah. The courage chapter, you talk about someone, another writer, I believe coming to you and asking you for help with an article. I think it was, they were working on with regard to what some of your fears were. And so you went through this mm-hmm. exercise of, of naming some of your fears talk about how eye opening that was and and just in general the power of naming our fears
1: boy th- that that was really scary i had a friend of mine who for those who haven't haven't seen the book a friend of mine asked me to as you mentioned to write about some of my fears and he did it in kind of an offhanded way and it it wasn't really a big deal he was asking me to do but as i sat down to write out things that i was actually scared of it, it really sort of frightened me because mm. Once I was really honest with myself, I began to see that I was really scared of, maybe not scared, but I was intimidated by what I thought people thought about me Mm. because there are times even even today, you know, where I think, well, that person kind of thinks I'm a joke or that person doesn't really take me seriously or Mm. that person, they may be nice to me to my face, but inside they're going, you know, he really needs to drop like 40 pounds or he needs to do this or that. Now, whether those are true or not, I have no idea. But I think we all deal with these fears that may or may not be true, but these are fears that are holding us back. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and we admit that we're scared of these things, giving a name to those fears, to me, takes the takes the teeth out of those. And when I write those down and I see how silly most of those are and how crazy they are, <laughs> it kind of allows me to just crumple up that piece of paper, throw it away and just move forward anyway. And, and really, who cares what, what anybody else thinks? I mean, I can't change their opinion of me anyway, so... I'm going to embrace the people who do support me and people who are my friends and people who are positive and and want to be helpful. But for me naming those fears is really critical because when you give those fears a name then you see oh they're they're really not so dangerous after all. They're they're just sort of these little insects cowering over there in the corner. They're not these big giant monsters looming over you.
0: And more often than not we think People are thinking about us a lot more than they're thinking about us. That is so
1: true. <laughs> it is so absolutely true. We're also self-absorbed, yeah. honestly. That's just human nature.
0: Um, in the empathy chapter, uh, speaking of of exercises, you you share here an, another simple exercise that, um, as you say, will help you to love more people. Can you explain that? Maybe unpack that?
1: Sure. I think just trying to look at look at things through other people's eyes and imagine what it's like in their shoes is really really helpful because ultimately we don't really know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. I know what it's like to be in my shoes, but I don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. And just the exercise of of assuming that other people are going through something really difficult at any given moment to mm. me really helps us to be empathetic. I think it was Plato who said, "Be kind for everyone is fighting a hard battle." Mm. At least that that quote is attributed to him. Who knows if he really said it, but it's often attributed to him. And that quote has really made an impact on me. Because even if it seems like things are going great for somebody, you can be 99% sure that they're going through something difficult that they haven't shared or articulated. It may be something in their marriage or something with their health or something with Mm. their finances or their kids or whatever it is. But everybody's going through something difficult, I think, the vast majority of the time. Mm. And in fact, Jeff, as I think about, I told my wife this a couple of days ago, as I think about my network of friends and family and just people who are kind of in my circle, I think about half of those people are either headed into a crisis, they're in a crisis, or they're just coming out of a crisis of some kind. Mm. I think the last couple of years have been really hard on a lot of people. So if we can just remember to practice a little more kindness and empathy mm. and understanding and patience, I think that really goes a long way.
0: Sort of connected to that is this uh, word in the book, a chapter dedicated to it called generosity. Share some of the ways you list in the book that, that we can be generous and practice every day quite simply.
1: You know, we often think of generosity as As giving money. And I think that's a part of it. That's Mm. part of success is financial generosity. So I know Vincent Puglisi was recently on your show. Vincent's one of Mm. my mentors and business coaches. I've been a part of his Total Life Freedom mastermind for for a couple of years. And he's had a a really big impact on my on my thinking and on my business and Mm. just helping me get started. He talks a lot about generosity. So I definitely want to point people back to back to his book that he released recently. But that is that is one way that we can be generous as money wise. But there are other ways to be generous too that don't cost anything like Commenting on people's posts on social media, and adding a positive word there. Sharing people's podcasts on social media and saying, "Hey, I listened to the Read delete Lead podcast. This is a great show. You should really check it out." Or posting a review for somebody's book. I mean, that is such a simple thing. In fact, Jeff, just before we hopped on here this morning, I noticed that you are three reviews away from 100 reviews on Amazon for your Read to Lead book, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I felt horrible because I don't think I'd yet left a review. So <laughs> as soon as we're done, I'm going to go add my review. Bump up to 98. So anybody listening, if you haven't reviewed (laughs) Jeff's book yet, we got to do that. We got to get you over a hundred, (laughs) man.
0: funny you say that because it's been stuck at 97 for the better part of, I don't know, a month. I don't know why. I just can't seem to get over the, that hundred hump. So I appreciate that very much.
1: Well, I'm going to take, to take my own advice from the book, I'm going to take personal responsibility for <laughs> not just leaving a review, but I'm going to recruit at least two other people to leave their reviews. So I want to get that sucker over a hundred. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you. You're quite, you're quite generous. I appreciate it. Uh, in the chapter on creativity, and let me preface this by saying, I think sort of the the, the definition of creativity in my view, is our ability to borrow from other people, to collaborate with other people, yeah. to then, then bring knowledge that might at first blush seem disparate and, and unconnected. When, you, when you're able to bring it together uh, from different sources, suddenly you see connections that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. Uh, talk about what to look for in a collaborator. What, what are some of the qualities we should hold out for, for growing our creativity?
1: That's a great question. I I do really agree with you. Collaboration is a huge part of creativity, and taking ideas from different places and blending those in new and different and unexpected ways. I do think when you are looking for a collaborator, first and foremost, it has to be somebody who's positive, Mm. and somebody who's who's not looking to tear others down or or who has a poverty mentality, meaning when somebody else wins, then I lose, or when I win, they have to lose. I think Mm. that's a huge that's such a dangerous mindset Mm. that a lot of people struggle with. I struggled with it for a long time too, honestly. But, but now I'm in a place where I understand that when somebody else wins, then that can be a win for me also. And when I win, other people can win also. You know, a, a win is good for everybody. But when it comes to collaborators, having somebody who is positive, I think having somebody who who understands the value of generosity and who understands that collaboration is you know, one plus one equals three. It's that kind of a thing Mm. that they're not out just to get their piece of it. They really want to contribute and add value to other people, whatever the medium is, whether it's writing or uh, having podcast guests or speaking somewhere or creating something together, music or, or whatever it is. In my view, it's not just about the skills and talents the person has to have the right mindset and the right personality. You have to click with them, obviously. You have to vibe with them on a creative level, but just somebody who's there to add value and who wants to collaborate and who understands you can create great things if you will just take your own ego out of the equation as much as possible, <laughs> which is hard for all of us to do. Let's be honest.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, this podcast for me from the very beginning has been a series of collaborations. I, I do a solo episode every now and then. I've done a couple in the last few months, but 95% of these episodes are a collaboration with with people yeah. like you. And I couldn't do that on my own. I mean, I, I guess I could read books and and do audio summaries of those books, but to me, it's more fun engaging the author and and disseminating the content from a book directly from the horse's mouth, so to
1: speak. <laughs> totally. I've always thought of, and I've I've done podcasting for a long time and have had a lot of guests on over the years. And I've always thought of podcasting as kind of like, now I'm sort of being a little facetious, but but in a way it's kind of like getting free coaching for an hour and everybody else <laughs> just gets to listen in because right. I get to have people that I that I love and respect and admire on my show, mm. just like you do. And I get to ask them all my questions about whatever the topic is. And they share really awesome things, and I get to learn from that and, mm. and then i just I just kind of happen to post it that there' is a podcast again, <laughs> I'm being a little crazy, but but I think there's an element to that where man, you just learn so much from people when you have a podcast
0: uh, totally and and I've said this before on the show I mean, some of the people I've had the chance to sit down with were I not publishing that as a podcast, I might have to fork over a few hundred or a few thousand dollars to have that exactly. 45 minute conversation. Well, I've got a, a question, a few questions actually, that aren't directly related to the book. Uh, before I get into those, anything else from this book you want us to know about? We only really dove into five of the 18. Are there others that are particular favorites of you that you want to make sure that we, we know about?
1: You know, the, the last one that I talk about in the book is forgiveness. That's the last of the 18 words. And when I wrote that chapter, I was thinking of a very close friend of mine who has, has had a lot of trouble forgiving someone in their life who hurt them. Obviously, I'm not going to go into detail about that, and I didn't do that in the book for obvious reasons, but I think many of us struggle with forgiveness, but the person that we have a hard time forgiving the most is ourselves because we've done stupid things in the past. We've made mistakes. My goodness, when I look back over the last five or six years even trying to figure out what I was going to do for my business, I made a lot of really dumb mistakes and I wasted years Mm. just kind of spinning my wheels. And I'm so thankful that I have a patient wife who's always been supportive and who has just been my rock and and she's so wise and smart and, and you should probably have her on. She would, she would <laughs> actually be way more fun than me <laughs> and, way, and way smarter, but I'm so thankful for that, but it's hard to forgive ourselves. But I think there's something important to just recognizing, Hey, I made some mistakes. I learned from those and now mm-hmm. it's time to move on. So that, that one is, is really close to my heart as well. But, um, but yeah, I'd, I appreciate the chance to chat about the book.
0: I hinted at this earlier, but you have another book you've been working on with the stepbrother of Elvis Presley, yes, that comes out today. How did that come about? And and share what, what that book is all about.
1: So that book is all about Elvis's spiritual journey. One of the things that has really never been explored in any sort of a deep way in movies or books or anywhere else is Elvis's journey as a person of faith, mm. which is kind of odd considering the fact that Elvis is one of the most written and talked about people in American history, probably all of history. You know, mm-hmm. if you think of besides a, few, a handful of presidents and entertainers, you know, Elvis is one of the most widely known figures in really in modern history. Mm-hmm. So this book is all about his journey as a person of faith. And this is a very special book because it's written from the perspective of his younger stepbrother, Billy Stanley, who grew up with Elvis. He was part of Elvis's entourage for years, lived in Graceland for many years, and uh, was very, very close to Elvis. And he got to see Elvis's life and work from the vantage point of a family member. So it's a very unique book. It's a very heartwarming book. It's a very quick read, a very easy read. The The early feedback I've gotten from people has been that it's really inspiring. It makes you feel good. And it's a very fast read. And we specifically designed it that way to be a quick read. Now, the way that I stumbled into this project, and I, I didn't actually stumble into it, but it sort of felt that way at the time, is I've got a friend who's a ghostwriter, and she connected me with a friend of hers who's a literary agent. And For those sort of not in the book world, literary or which sometimes are called book agents are people who connect authors with publishers. That's the way books happen most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. And those agents perform a really critical function in the book industry. So this friend connected me with his book agent for a different project, actually. That project didn't end up working out, which is not uncommon in the ghostwriting world. But then one day, a few weeks later, she called me and said, hey, I've got this other book that I think you'd really enjoy working on. We need somebody with a Bible or a, a pastoral type of a background. So mm. I was a pastor in my 20s, taught at a Christian college for many years after that. Mm-hmm. So I fit the bill. And she said, are you interested? And I said, well, I'd be stupid not to be interested. So <laughs> that's kind of how I came onto that project. Mm. And uh, it's for Thomas Nelson Publishers, part of HarperCollins. And it was I feel like it spoiled me in a little bit because it was such a wonderful experience working with those wonderful editors, designers, and their whole team. And then Billy Stanley, Elvis' stepbrother, is such a wonderful storyteller and mm. such a great guy. He just made a really great collaborator. And, and I can talk about this publicly because my name's on the book, which, is, which isn't which is usually the case for ghostwriting. But uh, but in this case, it was, which I'm mm. really thankful for, so I can share the book with people. So, yeah, that comes out today. Should be in bookstores all over the place, Amazon and all the normal places. So, Thanks for giving me an opportunity to mention
0: that. Will this be your first traditionally published book? Your others have been self-published. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Now, how would you compare the two experiences, pros and cons? That wasn't a question I was planning on throwing at you, but as someone who's published a book traditionally and hasn't yet ventured into the self-publishing space, I'm I'm curious to know.
1: Well, the way that I have approached it up until now, and I'm just going to give you a totally honest answer, is that for my own stuff, I have self-published because I don't think that my platform is probably big enough to be a, of an interest to a publisher. Mm. The number that I keep hearing from people in that world is that you need to have an audience of at least 50,000 people for them to seriously consider you. So between mm. my social media and email list, I don't I don't quite reach that number. I'm getting there quickly, mm-hmm. but but it's not something that I have really pursued up until now because I, I just didn't think they would probably want to. Uh, at some point I may do that, but now the other side of that also is that I really like the control that comes from independent publishing. Mm. I am a stickler for things like book layout and cover design, and I love every aspect of the book production process. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of a geek and a nerd when it comes to that. I mean, I'm the guy who's out <laughs> who's getting his ruler out. I've got a ruler right here. In fact, I'm measuring the book to see what size it is. I'm counting the lines on the page and looking at the spacing and the fonts and all that stuff. Wow. Uh, I'm really into that stuff because I think that's a part of the reader experience. In fact, mm. I paid a lot of attention to that with the 18 words book. Um, as far as the white space on the page and the length of the paragraphs and the sentences and mm. the chapters to create the most positive reader experience possible. So I wanted you to keep turning the pages. So that's why I made the chapters really short. I think that's important. Um, but really to answer your question, I I love independent publishing and the control that you can have with that. But I also had a really great experience with Thomas Nelson on this book. And it was really, really fun to work with people at the top of their game in the publishing Mm. industry. They were an absolute dream to work with. So So yeah, I I think as opportunities present themselves, you have to evaluate what do you want from this book and Mm. what are your goals for it. Sometimes traditional publishing is the answer. Sometimes indie publishing is the answer or maybe hybrid publishing. I do a lot of work with Morgan James Publishing with client books and some other Mm. things. So yeah, there's lots of options. I think it just depends on what your goals are for it.
0: Yeah, one of your books was co-authored with the the founder of Morgan James, is that right?
1: Correct, called Performance-Driven Giving. And that was the book that came out actually in May of this past year. And that book was all about how... How giving actually makes you a higher performing individual. I loved working in that book. I learned so much from David and, and our co-author, Bobby Kipper. That was a really, really fantastic project to be involved in. I really, really love doing that. So, you know, we talked about generosity earlier. That's a book I would highly recommend to people if you want to develop more of those qualities in your life. And we also talk a lot about giving in a corporate and business context in that book, which is really important as well.
0: Final question, and this relates to uh, personal knowledge management, uh, something that I've been sort of a, an evangelist for the last couple of years. And just recently, started teaching online for a live cohort, the third one of which kicks off today called Note Making Mastery. I want to ask you how you manage your personal knowledge. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically to the content you consume and the notes that are generated from that content? what what What's your process like? Surely it varies depending on what it is you're consuming, book, podcast, video, et cetera. Sure. But I'd love to know what practices uh, help you keep the borrowed creativity of others that you want to keep and maybe expound on and turn into new and fresh ideas of your own.
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that I'm really glad you've been doing this. And I'm on your email list, actually, Jeff, and I see all the emails about <laughs> the, the note-taking mastery and everything. And I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing this because man, it is such a needed Mm. thing because so many of us struggle with getting organized with all those things. So as a writer, this is a critical part of my, of not just my life, but of my job as well. I have to Mm -hmm. stay organized. So I am an Evernote junkie and I've used Evernote for probably 10 or 12 years. And I would describe myself as a power user because I literally, I'm in Evernote multiple times a day, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 or 15 times a day. It's where I keep all my podcast stuff, it's where I keep stuff related to my taxes and personal finances and gift ideas for my wife and my son for Christmas and about a million and a half other kinds of things. So I have a really extensive list of notebooks in Evernote and I'm constantly forwarding emails in there. I use the mobile app a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm in the desktop app a lot. <laughs> I'm a little scared because if, if they ever go out of business, I'm really going to be in a major world of hurt. <laughs> so I've considered mm-hmm. switching to something like Notion or other things, but. Mm-hmm the pain of switching those tens of thousands of notes. I just can't, I can't bear the thought of how I would do that. Um, but I use Evernote a lot. I'm sure there's probably more elegant solutions these days because they really haven't innovated in a few years. I mean, sorry to say, but when they first came out, it, it was a really great app mm. and I still use it all the time. So it still serves a great purpose in my life. But really the main thing here is I think you're performing a great service for people, Jeff. It's we've got to get more organized. And if you're going to be a leader, and you're going to read and take notes, you got to have a great system for doing that. So I appreciate you putting the time and effort into creating resources around that.
0: Well, thank you uh, again for saying that. And I I think you're right. I think Evernote doesn't make it easy to move your information out of there should you want to. However, I I think you made a great point. It's a tool that works for many. It's a tool I used to use. I've I've found a better solution for me based on my note-taking style or archetype. But if you're in it every day and you look forward to going to it, that's the key with what I would call your central hub, the hmm. place where all your notes go, that one place. If it's a sandbox f- for you that you love to play in, then you're in the right sandbox. You know, if, it, if for, for me, it became something that I did not look forward to going to, and it became a glorified web clipper for me and, and just in how yes. I use it. And that's not a, a knock on Evernote as much as it is a knock on how I was using it. But I found a tool for me that works a little better. And I discovered that rather than being sort of a librarian, someone who wants to store and easily retrieve ideas, which is how I had operated for years, I'm more someone who wants to cultivate and grow my ideas. And there's a better solution for that than the one I was using. Mm. And so one of the first things we talk about in note making Mastery is helping you determine, well, what is your note-taking archetype? And is, is the one you think it is the one it should be? Uh, Cause I had somebody say who signed up this week who said, I've been, I've been this librarian for years. And what I've realized is, is though that's the archetype I identify with based on my goals and what I want to accomplish in the years ahead, that's not the archetype I need to be practicing. Hmm. And so it's a really eye opening uh, thing. But I think, I think you're obviously in the right place. You're being productive. It's, it's one you go back to again and again. And so it's working. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other
1: words, that's true. I'm really glad you're doing this because something that I have noticed now I I spend a lot of time around writers and and people mm-hmm. who are doing that kind of work and there's something I've noticed with a lot of writers is there's almost a and I want to choose my words carefully and, and these aren't really the right words but they're what come to mind at the moment mm-hmm. there's almost a cult of obsession with notebooks and pens and pencils and mm-hmm. this kind of an idea among writers that You've got to use the exact same pencil John Steinbeck used, or else you're not going to produce great work. You've got to have this certain brand of notebook and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's all mostly nonsense, to be honest with you. Mm. I think you've got to pick what works for you and go with it. And so I would love to see more writers go through your courses and really think about these kinds of things, because it is so easy to get in this mindset of you're always kind of searching for the next tool. You're always searching Mm -hmm. for this perfect thing that that's going to unlock all your creative powers and the and your creative dreams and your writing dreams and all that stuff. And mm. I just don't think that's true. I think you just keep it simple and you've got to, there's, there's a lot of writers who are collecting information. They're storing information. They're kind of a receptacle for ideas, but they're not actually publishing stuff or writing stuff. Yeah. Collecting stuff doesn't do you a lot of good unless there's some kind of practical or tangible outcome of all that stuff mm. you've been collecting.
0: One last thing I'll say about that. If you're listening to this on uh, the week of October 4th. It's not too late to join the latest iteration of Note Making Mastery. Uh, just go to jeffbrown.me. Well, uh, this has been a great deal of fun, a very rewarding conversation, uh, Kent. I encourage you to pick up 18 Words to Live By A Father's Wisdom on What Matters Most. A great book to sit down and read in one sitting or to simply dip your toe into the waters of when the mood strikes, when the need strikes. Either way, I can't thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for being here on the podcast today.
1: Thanks, Jeff. This has been a huge honor. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat about the book and also just to chat with you. You're you're just such a wonderful guy and adding so much value to people in so many ways. So I really sincerely appreciate it.
0: You know, I have to say when you asked uh, what would make this a good episode and I jokingly said compliment the host, you really took
1: that to heart. (laughs) Oh, I actually actually forgot we talked about that. I just literally when I come on a show, my goal is to make people feel good. And I just um, want people to, to leave the episode thinking, hey, That was fun. I feel positive. You know, my day's going to be a little bit better. So,
0: well, you're good at it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Whereas Elvis would say, thank you very much. To pick up either of Kent's
0: books we talked about today, 18 Words to Live By or The Faith of Elvis or any of his previous books, you can visit the show notes page for this episode, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 443. You'll find a synopsis, a summary of this episode there. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 443 for episode 443. And as I mentioned, there's still time to take part in this month's Note Making Mastery cohort. You can sign up at jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me to sign up today and join us this month. In Note Making Mastery, you learn how to better collect and capture your notes, how to better connect and organize your notes, how to better develop and distill your notes, and how to better create from your notes. And that's just the start. Hope to see you this month. Go to jeffbrown.me to find out more. Next week, we'll be chatting with Slack's Helen Cup, co-author of a book called How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. Again, that's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time we get together. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.